The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Father John Zulsdorf and another podcast. A crazy little train in Cochabamba Takes you for a ride that's quite a thrill This crazy little train's the choo-choo-cha-cha It cha-chas all the way to Cha-Cha-Bill Today we welcome as our guest William Kilpatrick, who writes at Crisis Magazine, always valuable. He has a piece about the upcoming Pan-Amazonian Synod of Bishops to be held in Rome in October of this year, 2019. Today we're going to hear William Kilpatrick's piece at Crisis Magazine about the upcoming Synod of Bishops to be held with the theme of the Amazon. What should be done? It's going to be, the Synod will be held in Rome in October of this year. Now, firstly, I have to apologize for the sound quality of this podcast. I'm on the road, and as I record, I am in a basement surrounded by boxes, and there may be noise from the floorboards above, in case you were wondering, what is that sound? Uh, that said, I was pretty eager to get this excellent piece out there to a wider audience, and so here I am. Now, there's an awful lot in this piece by William Kilpatrick to commend itself, not the least of which is its snappy writing. Kudos for that. I read this to make the important contents available to those of you who might have a hard time reading on screen or in print or who benefit from listening for their learning. Also, and I think in justice I have to add this, Crisis usually provides a machine language audio recording at the top of their articles uh, generated by Amazon. It's a little bar you can click the arrow and the, it'll, the machine reading will you know, read it to you. And the readings are pretty good all in all, but they, all, they don't always get everything right. Uh, I use machine language readings from an older generation of one of my Kindles. And after a while, your brain adjusts to fill in blanks and to bring in subtleties and, you know, after a while. Of course, when there are multiple languages involved or footnotes, the machine-generated language tends to go to the zoo. But uh, for extended prose and English, they're really helpful. Anyway, uh, I think a live reading is always a little bit better. As you listen, tune your ears for the following uh, the writer properly and deftly brings in the stale old ideas of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a seriously nasty guy who hypocritically wrote about the pristine nobility of the unsullied native and of children. Uh, listen for his uh, brilliant dig about socialism, which was dead on target. Uh, listen for his talk about enculturation. I'll have a little more to say about that later. Also, um, it helps to know references. It helps to know who Teilhard de Chardin was, the weird uh, Jesuit with all strange, all sorts of strange ideas. Uh, the libs and Gen- Jesuits right now are trying to rehabilitate him uh, these days, which really doesn't come as much of a surprise. But uh, his stuff really seeped into a lot of the corners of the pseudo intellectuals of the church, especially back in the. 60s and so forth and he's back you know just like like you know bad sitcoms about earlier decades seem to be back it's all very retro 
Uh, Gilpatrick uh, also talks about uh, the Woodstock mentality that uh, some of these aging hippies who are behind all this seem to be evincing. Um, And he identifies uh, quite properly a very strong influence on the uh, shaping of this this synod, German bishops, and um, also tune your ear uh, toward the end for the refer- reference to C.S. Lewis. It's uh, it's quite apt. Anyway, without further delay, here is the wonderful piece by William Kilpatrick, who writes at Crisis Magazine about the upcoming synod. The Amazon Synod Goes Native by William Kilpatrick in Crisis Magazine on July 3, 2019. Every now and then, the utopians in our midst dust off Rousseau's noble savage thesis and try to convince us that life in the jungle beats life in the air-conditioned suburbs. The general idea is that people who live close to the state of nature are spiritually superior to civilized people who have lost touch with the wisdom of nature. Rousseau's idea was tested during the French Revolution, and it did lead to a lot of savagery, though not the noble kind. Then it was revived by various romantic poets, such as Wordsworth, who encouraged his readers to quit your books and Let nature be your teacher. Irving Babbitt's 1919 book, Rousseau and Romanticism, should have been the death knell for the noble savage hypothesis, but the idea was hard to kill. It popped up again with anthropologist Margaret Mead's Coming of Age in Samoa, a book which argued that Samoans were free of neurotic hang-ups because they enjoyed greater sexual freedom. Then, in the 1960s, due in part to the influence of Mead, came the Woodstock generation, hippie communes, and the sexual revolution. In a sense, the children of that era really were the children of Rousseau, although he idealized the child in his book Emile. Rousseau had no use for real children, and sent all of his own off to orphanages as soon as they were born. As the Woodstock generation grew up and married, many discovered that children were an inconvenience when it came to the pursuit of sex and self-actualization. As divorce and out-of-wedlock births skyrocketed, increasing numbers of children were, in effect, orphaned. In short, they were left to grow up on their own, without much adult guidance. Marinated in neo-Rousseauian nostrums, the adults assumed that children would just naturally find the right path in life. The sexual revolution never really went away, but in subsequent decades there was some recognition that going native was not conducive to a healthy society. Now, however, we seem to be poised on the brink of a new experiment in Rousseauian living. I was in Miami Beach recently, and a great many of the colorfully tattooed young and not-so-young crowding the streets and the boardwalks looked like they had come straight out of Haight-Ashbury's circa 1970, except that the term straight doesn't quite do justice to the gender fluidity that was on display. Moreover, 
Many of the Miami natives strolling through the shopping areas were wearing considerably less clothing than an Amazonian strolling through the rainforest. Which brings me to the point of this essay. The most ironic thing about this new venture into the primitive is that some of the prime movers are the leaders of the Catholic Church. Take the upcoming Amazon Synod. The working document for the Synod does make some valid observations about the biological and climatological importance of the Amazonian region and about the exploitation of the Amazonian people. But when it comes to describing the peoples, the voice of the Amazon sounds suspiciously like the voice of Rousseau, or better, the voice of Rousseau harmonized with the voice of Pierre Teilhard de Chardin and elevated to the cosmic level. Thus, a fundamental aspect of the root of human sin is to detach oneself from nature. A cosmic dimension of experience, cosmovivencia, palpitates within the families. It is necessary to grasp what the Spirit of the Lord has taught these people throughout the centuries, faith in God, Father, Mother, Creator, communion and harmony with the earth, solidarity with one's companions, the living relationship with nature and Mother Earth. In its celebration of the rainforest, the wise old elders and the Amazonian Cosmovision, the document reads like a cross between Green Mansions, the Divine Milieu, and Carlos Castaneda's The Teachings of Don Juan, the document also calls to mind certain themes from Mutiny on the Bounty. That's because its authors seem to be counseling a mutiny against those traditional church practices and teachings that might impede the development of an Amazonian brand of Catholicism. If we're smart, they seem to say, we'll jump ship, the bark of Peter, and go live with the welcoming natives on the tropic island, Amazonia. So, when the document speaks of inculturation, which it often does, it means that we should abandon our culture and adopt that of the Amazonians. Why? Because they have much to teach us about spirituality, ecotheology, lived reality, and communing with the trees, the animals, and the spirits. Like the working document from last fall's Youth Synod, this one is all about listening. The earlier document said that the church must listen to youth because youth are in touch with what's happening now. The current document says that the church must listen to the wise elders of the tribes because they're in touch with the ancient wisdom of the ancestors. Do the two documents contradict each other? Don't be silly. That's linear thinking. As Walt Whitman, one of the earlier advocates of cosmic consciousness, wrote, Do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. So, just shut up and listen to your elders. According to the document, another thing the Amazonians can teach us is buen vivir, good living. In other words, they can show us how to live in poverty and be happy. This is a talent that will prove quite handy, because if the socialist 
anti-free market economics as subscribed to by the document's authors are put into practice, poverty will spread like wildfire. These are just a few of the supposed benefits that the Amazonians will confer upon the church. But what does the church have to offer to the indigenous people of the Amazon? Well, basically, nothing. Remember that they live closer to nature than we do, and in the Rousseauian thought world, that makes them more virtuous than us. The authors of the working document really do seem to subscribe to Rousseau's belief in natural goodness. In a commentary on the document, Father Raymond D'Souza puts it this way, The peoples of the Amazon themselves seem curiously exempt from original sin, and without sin, why would there be need for redemption? Or conversion. If the spiritually advanced people of the Amazon are okay the way they are, then there's no need to convert them to Christianity. Indeed, one gets the impression that the Amazon Synod is not intended to convert indigenous people to the church, but to convert the church to the Indians' eco-friendly, pantheistic form of spirituality, with the result that Catholicism becomes a new church with an Amazonian face. Whether this will be a happy face remains to be seen. It all sounds a little crazy, but if you've been paying attention, you will notice that all sorts of bizarre things are happening in the church these days. Thankfully, we needn't get into all that here because the Amazonian experiment has enough bizarreness to fill volumes. One of the odd ironies of this New Age spirituality is that it's being foisted on the church by old men. Many of the key players in the Amazonian project are getting along in years, yet they are still enamored of ideas that became popular 60 years ago a time when many young people thought that the age of Aquarius, whatever that means, was about to dawn. Bishop Erwin Krautler, a member of the Preparatory Committee on the Amazon Synod, is 80. Cardinal Claudio Humes, 85, is president of the Pan-Amazonian Ecclesial Network, and Cardinal Walter Casper, who is very much involved in the planning for the Synod, is 86. Facing off against them is another elderly prelate, Cardinal Walter Brandmuller, who is 90. Brandmuller calls the working document for the Synod heretical and an apostasy from divine revelation, and he says it should be rejected. But then, how can a nonagenarian cardinal possibly understand the youthful, new-agey vision of the octogenarian cardinals? One of the hazards of reading highly unusual documents is that one begins to think unusual thoughts. Somehow, this standoff between the octogenarians and the nonagenarian reminded me of a scene from The Boys from Brazil. Toward the end of the film, a bloody fight erupts between a sexagenarian, Gregory Peck as Dr. Mengele, and a septuagenarian, Laurence Olivier as the Nazi hunter. Well, that's only a slight connection to the elderly bishops. But then, as often happens when one stays up late writing, I begin to notice other connections. Boys from Brazil is about a Nazi doctor who has come to Brazil 
after the war with a plan to implant surrogate mothers with zygots carrying samples of Hitler's DNA in the hope of creating Hitler clones who will reestablish the Reich. It's a crazy plot, but then so is the plan to recast the church in the image of the Amazon jungle. So maybe it's time for a remake of the story. Let's title it The Boyish Bishops from Brazil. If you are a conspiracy theorist, you will see the connection right away. One curiosity of the Amazon Synod is that a suspiciously large percentage of the participants are bishops from German-speaking countries. Could it be that a group of aging German bishops, still boyish in their own minds, have hatched a plot to carry the spiritual DNA of Thierry de Chardin, Cardinal Godfrey de Niels, Cardinal Carlo Martini, and other New Age prelates to the Amazon with the hope that in the warm, moist jungle climate, their ideals will germinate and spread throughout the planet, eventually causing all of us to evolve into the cosmic Christ. The cosmic Christ, mind you, is not anything like the Christ of the Gospels, but more like a pantheistic spirit that inhabits you and me and the trees and the river and the grass. But I digress. In fact, I see that I am wandering. But isn't that the point of it all? To be able to wander freely and fluidly from one lived experience to the next, to enter the great stream of consciousness and be re-baptized in the waters of the Amazon? Such free association is fully justified by the document itself, which tells us that we must relearn how to weave the links that connect all the dimensions of life. Besides, Father George Rutler frequently employs the free association method, so it must be okay. Could he have learned this technique from an elderly shaman in the rainforest? It seems unlikely, but in Amazon land, anything is possible. For example, the document keeps insisting that the liturgical and doctrinal innovations it proposes are in perfect continuity with church tradition. Hmm, maybe. For example, one of the high-level synod participants seems the very embodiment of the old church's authoritarian approach. Bishop Franz Josef Offerbeck of Essen, Germany, said that the Synod will lead the Church to a point of no return, and after that, nothing will be the same as it was. Reichsbishop Übermensch, or Overbeck, is also reputed to have said, We have phase of making you comply. As we all know by now, God wills a diversity of religions, and the Neo-Rousseauian bishops seem happy to comply by ordering up a whole menu of diversities, one form of Christianity for the Amazon basin with an Amazonian face, another, we presume, for the Australian outback with an Aborigine face, and still another, no doubt, for the South Seas with a Polynesian face. As for the church in Europe and North America, it needs to put on a happy face. Most likely some fluid blend of the Amazonian Aboriginal and Polynesian face. The trouble is, all this mixing up of Christianity with other traditions and spiritualities is bound to result in a dilution of Christianity. When you filter the Christian faith through 50 trillion gallons of Amazon rainwater and then 
submerged in a giant vat of bubbling psychosocial ecobabble, you end up with a faith that is no longer recognizable. In the process, Christ loses his unique identity as the one way to the Father. Instead, he is forced to take his place alongside other founders, such as Buddha and Muhammad, and with other assorted deities such as Brahma, Vishnu, and Quetzalcoatl. The Declaration Dominus Jesus declared that Jesus Christ has a significance and a value for the human race and its history, which is unique and singular, proper to him alone, exclusive, universal, and absolute. The Gospel message, in short, does exclude many competing practices and spiritualities, and it is universal, accessible to all. But for some reason, the New Age bishops seem to think that the farmers, fishermen, and herders of the Amazon couldn't possibly understand the message that was addressed to farmers, fishermen, and herders in the first century Judea without first having translated it into a language that only German theologians understand. On the other hand, they are quite sure that the Amazonians, perhaps guided by some Yoda-like elder, will quickly grasp the fine points of Teilhard de Chardin's mystical musings about Christogenesis, cosmogenesis, ultra-hominization, biosphere, noosphere, and omega point. In places, the document borders on unintentional self-parody. Here are a couple of samples. Thus, a church called to be even more synodal begins by listening to the peoples and to the earth by coming into contact with the abundant reality of an Amazon full of life and wisdom, but also of contrasts. It continues with the cry that is provoked by the destructive deforestation and extractivist activities that demands an integral ecological conversion. Such an understanding of life is characterized by the connectivity and harmony of relationships between water, territory, and nature, community life and culture, God, and the various spiritual forces. Reading through this pseudo-profundity, especially the part about various spiritual forces, I was reminded of the banquet scene near the end of C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength. The members of the NICE Institute have gathered to congratulate themselves on their program to remake human nature along more scientific lines, but they have made the mistake of enlisting dark spiritual forces in their endeavor, and eventually they find that they are no longer in control. As the directors of the Institute rise to speak in turn, their talk is turned into gibberish. Thus, the deputy director thinks he is making sense, but the audience hears him saying, Tidies and Hugelmen, I shield for that we are, er, most steeply rebut the defensible, though I trust Lavatory Aspasia, which gleams to have selected our redeemed inspector this deceiving. It would uh, be shark, very shark, from anyone's adventure. The stream of Babel nicely exposes the essential nuttiness 
behind the high-sounding proposals of the NICE project. Eventually, one hopes, the Amazon project will be seen in the same light as a very shark enterprise. Well, that was William Kilpatrick's wonderful piece about the upcoming synod, actually about the working document of the upcoming synod. Let's be clear about that. It's about the working document, the Instrumentum Laboris, which is now available out there also in English, and you can read it you know, anytime you want. Now, um, a few observations. First of all, um, it might be helpful for you to reread or read for the first time C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, which starts with Out of the Silent Planet. It isn't great as science fiction, but it is very good as a lens into the human condition and the perennial battle we are in with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And there are moments of seriously beautiful prose in it. And it's something that we should, everybody should really have read. Uh, another book that I think everyone should read uh, and, it would be, and it would also be very useful for your untangling of what Kilpatrick is talking about here is a, a book by Benjamin Weicker, and that's spelled W-I-K-E-R, called Ten Books That Screwed Up the World and Five Others That Didn't Help. Now, Weicker shows how, in an evil chain, one bad book with really bad ideas influenced yet another book down the line and then that one influenced another one, passing on bad ideas and developing them and transmogrifying them into yet something else, and then so on and so on, down to the truly evil books of our own time and, and horrible things that have happened, you know, including things like even concentration camps. Weicker deals precisely with a couple of the writers in this piece uh, by Kilpatrick at Crisis Magazine, which we just heard, namely uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and uh, the really stupid and bad ideas of Margaret Mead. And uh, by the way, I think so much of this book by Weicker, Ten Books That Screwed Up the World, that one Christmas, it was the gift that I gave to everyone uh, in my circle and on my list. And uh, frankly, I'm thinking, uh, now that I've read this piece and I'm thinking about this book again, I'm thinking that this year, it should go to all the seminarians of the diocese when they get together this August for their annual time with the bishop. Each year for some years, I've asked readers to uh, send you know, 20 or 30 copies of particular books that then get distributed to them to help you know, shape, their, shape their thought. I think Weicker would be a very good book for them, but I digress. Uh, on another point, I suppose that those who have uh, walked together as everybody says, the synod means, you know, walking together, synodos, etc. All those who have walked together to consume the synodal Kool-Aid will object that this essay falls under the swift and unerring stroke of Godwin's Law. You might remember Godwin's Law. Um, it's also called the Reductio ad Hitlerum. Basically, the law says the first one in a debate to mention Hitler automatically loses. Uh, the problem is that sometimes the analogy is accurate. I'm reminded of what um, 
I think it was Henry Kissinger who once said, you know, even paranoids have enemies. You know, sometimes, you know, paranoids really do have enemies. You know, sometimes the analogy to Hitler is accurate. But remember that ideologues are always totalitarian. And those who are behind this or the working document for the Senate, I think, are clearly ideologues. You, don't, you can't get any other any other conclusion after reading it. Uh, another thing that we have to talk about is enculturation. Uh, this is an enormously important aspect of the working document. Enculturation can be good, enculturation can be bad. Uh, and it's it's like uh, the, the old nursery rhyme about the little girl with the little curl. Um, when she's good, she's very good, but when she's bad, she's horrid. Well, that's the same thing about enculturation. When it's good, it's great. When it's bad, it's very, very bad. Now, enculturation is real and necessary and inexorable. There is going to be influence of the world on the church. However, when it's uh, good influence and the, and the church also has its proper role to play within the world, then enculturation can be good and organic and properly ordered, and it can produce things like Christendom. And within Christendom, movements like the Baroque and even uh, uh, advances in science and economics and you name it, music, etc., architecture, you name it. But when it's wrong, of course, the Holy Church is the one that gets twisted out of recognition. There's discontinuity. Now let's think about enculturation uh, from the point of view of the formation that we get from Holy Mass. You know, as Catholics, formed according to the mind of the Church, as expressed in her worship, then we go out from Mass and we shape the world around us. And it is the work of all the members of Christ's body to bring the content of what we gain through our sacred liturgical worship, and remember the content is really Christ himself, to every corner and nook that we influence. So Holy Church shapes us, and we in turn shape the world around us. Now we all have our our own shaping by the world. These things are going to be in dialogue with each other. Then we bring our gifts, you know, formed as we are in our, in our various contexts, back to Holy Church, who makes them her own. Think about how an artist works. An artist has a certain for, formation in his own culture, then he puts that at the service of the church, but the church has influenced the artist. And this is the point. There's always a simultaneous two-way exchange there's what God wants to offer to the world through Holy Church, and there's what the world can then offer back to the church for her own use. But what the, what the church has to offer must always have logical priority over what the world is offering back. That's authentic enculturation. There's chronologically, it's a simultaneous two-way exchange. But what the church has to give must also always, always have logical priority over what the world is offering back. And this is one of the reasons why liturgical worship is so important. If you change our prayer, then you change our belief, and then you change our way of life. And after a while, if you weaken the way that the church worships, making it more worldly, conforming it to the world, 
then what the church has to give to the world is weakened, enervated, diluted, and soon it doesn't have logical priority over what the world is pushing back. And remember that one of our three great perennial enemies is the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's interesting that we can be in dialogue with the world. You know, of course, we have to understand the world in various ways. You know, that's a word that's, a word that's polyvalent. But I, I think that what we've seen over the last 50 years or so is the consequence of putting the world in logical priority over what the church has to give. And so enculturation, which is inexorable, has to be handled very, very carefully. And I'll submit to you that Kilpatrick has uh, offered us uh, a view that perhaps it hasn't been properly attended to. And finally, look, I'll remind you that what we're talking about here is a working document for the upcoming Senate. The Senate hasn't taken place yet, and it's a working document. It's not the Senate's final document. So officially, it means nothing. But it does point to what the organizers of the Senate want to accomplish. But that's not a done deal. Now, we've seen in this last you know, few synods some really strange things happening about how they were handled, you know, what they're trying to jam through. You know, we don't know what's going to happen during the synod itself. Uh, the past three synods suggest that, you know, it's, uh, an agenda is going to be pushed pretty hard on the participants. Uh, that said, as the writer said in the piece we heard, uh, there are lots of bizarre things going on in the church right now, and this is yet another signpost about where certain people certain aging hippies, let me put it that way, and their young acolytes are trying to lead us. And it's important that we know about this because each of us in our own sphere have to, you know, according to our own vocations, continue to live a good, faithful Christian life, even though some might be going here, there, or whatever. We have to keep it our equilibrium. So I hope this has been helpful in some way. Uh, you can, when you start putting small pieces together, like stones in a mosaic or pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, start to see an emerging picture of the, the world we're living, the landscape we're operating in. But remember, of all the possible universes that God could have created, he created this one. And he called us into being at this point in time and not some other point in time. So this is where he's going to give us all the graces that we need to deal with the problems today and not in some other age. This is our moment. This is our time. And he'll give us all the graces that we need to live a good Christian life and to get to heaven. Thank you very much for your attention. Please pray for me as I will for you. Yeah.